Thank you, Tom. Thank you, choir, praise team. Thank you for leading us to worship this morning. If you would, turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. If you have no clue who I am, if you're new here, or, or in the past couple of years new here, um, I pastored here from 2017 to 2021 and left here to work with a mission organization called Reaching and Teaching International Ministries. We do three things with that ministry organization. Uh, one, I'm a global trainer in the Middle East and North Africa, which means I get the opportunity to go into places um, like northern Iraq specifically and train uh, pastors, train church leaders, train potential church plants in that region of the world. Me and my wife work together to provide member care or shepherding to our 20-plus families that are working full-time in the Middle East and North Africa. And we also, since we're stateside, work with local internationals in the town that we live in. And you, as First Baptist Tullahoma, are a major, major part of all of that because you are who we consider our sending church. You are our primary supporter. I would say over 80 percent of all of our financial support comes out of this church's budget and out of these church's pews. So you are crucial to what we do. And when we come and say thank you, we mean it. We can't say thank you enough for all that you have done for us over the past two years to enable us to do this work. Those of you that pray for us, those of you that give. And we will share a little bit at the end of the service, um, assuming, depending on how much time we have, depends on how much I share. So... Mark chapter 4 this morning, we are actually going to be looking at probably a surprising passage of Scripture because you would likely presume that I'm here this morning to talk about missions or maybe something to do with the Great Commission, but that's not going to happen this morning. This text has been in the forefront of my mind, so either one of two things has happened. I've completely missed it this morning, or maybe this is just what the doctor ordered for someone here today. Uh, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse number 35, we'll read through the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Verse 39, he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You.
for the truth of your word. We thank you, God, for your grace and for your mercy that would enable us to even have the breath in our lungs to read your inspired, inerrant, written, living word. I pray that by your grace you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to believe what your word says today. And God, I pray that by your great grace and mercy you would somehow, someway use the feeble, weak words that I say to touch hearts and change lives today. In Jesus' name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. I want us to see four things in this passage of Scripture and some applications together. The first thing I want us to see, the first thing I want us to notice is found in verse 35. And it is simply this, that Jesus led them into the heart of a disaster. Jesus led them into the heart of a disaster. In verse 35 it says, on that day. What had they been doing on that day? On that day, Jesus had been teaching, Jesus had been preaching in parables like he always did, and then he had been pulling his disciples aside and explaining to them what he meant by those parables. And the time came, according to Jesus, that for them to move their ministry from one side of the sea to the other side of the sea. So on that day when evening came, the Bible says, He said to them, let us go over to the other side. It was Jesus that took the initiative here. Let's cross over from this ministry to another ministry on the other side of the sea. We're going to go over there and we're going to cast some demons out of a man who is tormented crossing the sea was Jesus' plan, absolutely, 100% God's will. Verse 36, leaving the crowd, they, the disciples, I think this is interesting, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was in other boats, were with him. Now Jesus gives the command, let's go to the other side. And then the disciples take charge. I mean, why wouldn't they take charge? Jesus was a carpenter. What do carpenters know about navigating a boat? What do carpenters know about sailing on the sea? I mean, Jesus knows everything. We know that. But, okay, you get the point. These guys are in their comfort zone. They know boats. They know the sea. They know ships. They know how to navigate. Jesus wants to go to the other side of the sea. We can get you there, Jesus. Get in the boat. Come on. So they took him with them in the boat. But they encounter something unexpected. Something you might not expect if you're with Jesus. Verse 37, there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. In the original language, Mark and Luke call this a whirlwind. Matthew calls it a sea quake. This is not just rough waters. This is serious. And Jesus got them into this mess. 
And Jesus does not always provide smooth sailing. Sometimes he leads us right into the middle of a sea quake. And that's the first point. Jesus led them into the heart of a disaster. The second point is that Jesus, get this, Jesus slept in the midst of the storm. Verse 38, Jesus himself was in the stern, in the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now this reminds me of something that sounds very familiar to me. Listen to it again, okay? Listen to this again. Jesus himself was in the stern. Got that? He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him. And they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You notice those words? Listen to Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold. He had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, and fallen sound asleep. And the captain approaches him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned or care about us that we not perish. Do you see all the similarities in that? Jesus is going to a place of ministry. Jonah is running from a place of ministry. But I want to propose to you that both Jesus and Jonah knew who hurled the storm onto the sea, and they both knew that he was in 100% control of their life and their death, so they slept. These disciples who are experienced boatsmen, however, are terrified. They're terrified. They have probably never experienced this before, or they would have been dead. I mean, these guys know what they're doing. They know how to navigate a storm. At this point, it's gotten so bad that they are running to the carpenter saying, Hey, we're dying. Get up. Help us. Figure something out. Bail some water. Whether their approach of Jesus is motiva- motivated by fear for their lives or frustration with Him for getting them into and leaving them in the midst of this disaster, the issue is Jesus is asleep. Now, I don't know about you, but this goes against just about everything I've ever learned about Jesus. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the poem, Footprints in the Sand. I've seen it on some of your walls, so I know you are. (laughs) The writer of this poem is perplexed because as he sees two sets of footprints in the sand... It seems that when times got tough, when trials came, when tribulation came, there was only one set of footprints in the sand. 
And the writer asked, why, when you are needed the most, would you leave me, Jesus? Jesus says, I would never leave you. During your trials and testings, when there was only one set of footprints, and you know the punchline by now, right? When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Well, there's some disciples in Mark chapter 4, and maybe some in this room that would say, that's a nice poem, but that does not feel like the reality for me. How about we write a new poem instead of footprints in the sand, and we call it Asleep in the Stern. I don't think that quite has the same ring, does it? Sometimes Jesus leads us into a sea quake and seems to fall asleep on us. I don't intend to paint a gloomy picture of footprints in the sand, folks. I am sure that many of us, if not most of us, will testify to times in our lives when we have experienced great trials and great difficulties and we know that Jesus carried us, and we're thankful for that. But I'm also sure that many of us, I'm not going to ask for a raising of hands because I may be the only one up, then I'm going to be like, well, ouch, I missed this one this morning. But I'm just going to presume that there are many of us, if not most of us, that have felt at times like Jesus was sleeping in the stern while our world was burning down around us. And that's how the disciples felt. But we move on to verses 39 and 40, and we see the third thing. Jesus rebuked the storm. But that's not all. Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, said to the sea, Hush, be still, and the wind died down, and it became perfectly, perfectly calm. He gets up, and with a word, stops the storm. We go from sea quake to sea still in a millisecond. He is 100% completely in control of this situation. But then we see something unexpected in verse 40. After he stills the storm, he said to them in verse 40, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? Why are you anxious? Do you still have no faith? Jesus rebukes the storm, but that's not all. He turns on his disciples too. You would think he would say, good job, guys. You came to the right place. In the midst of the crisis, you ran to me in the midst of the storm, and I am honored. I appreciate your faith and your trust and your dependence upon me. But that is not at all what we see. Jesus says, do you have no faith? Not, do you have little faith? But do you have no faith? In Southern English, you don't got none. That made sense to you there? Okay. I consulted 32 different translations And every one of them say, none, nada, no faith. So Jesus is saying, you guys have nothing, no faith. Their fear, their fear 
even in the midst of a storm, while Jesus is sleeping on them, their fear does not draw the sympathetic understanding of Jesus. It is unacceptable. It did not bring sympathy. It brought a rebuke. Your natural reaction to this situation, Peter, James, John, and the rest of you, your natural reaction to this situation gives evidence that you have no faith, which is a problem for them. It's a problem for us because, Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him, and he's not pleased right now. You can tell he's not pleased with them. I don't think he was not pleased because he was grumpy because they woke him up from his nap. He didn't get up from his nap on the wrong side of the stern. No. He's displeased because these guys have no faith and they have no faith because they're operating by fear even in the midst of a deadly storm. Jesus led them into the heart of a disaster. Jesus slept during the midst of that disaster. And yet Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, but also them for their lack of faith. The last thing, not really the last thing, but you know, kind of the last thing, before we get to application, is in verse 41. They didn't really know him. I mean, they've been listening to him teaching these parables. He had pulled them aside, talked to them. He had called them to himself. They have been walking with him a little while, but they didn't really know him. Verse 41, they became very much afraid. I like it that they were afraid during the storm, but they're very much afraid now. And they said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind... And the sea obey him. Their fear of the storm, ultimately their fear of death, was replaced with a fear of him. Who is this guy? I kind of thought he would teach us some cool stuff about God. You know, maybe gather up an army and eventually overthrow the Romans. You know, establish the reestablish the glory of Israel and rule from Jerusalem, but this is a curveball. He commands the seas and the waves, and they obey. Who is this guy? Period. End of chapter. Chapter 5, we're casting demons out of a guy in a cemetery. What is the point? Here's a few possibilities. Being in the center of God's will and in the center of a hurricane are sometimes the same thing. These aren't on the screen, by the way, so don't panic up there. I don't think. Being in the center of God's will and the center of a hurricane are sometimes the same thing. The way you confirm God's will is not by smooth sailing. Doing right does not equal blessing. Trial and tribulation and suffering does not equal your doing wrong. Get that out of your head. 
That's TBN preaching. That's Joel Osteen preaching. That's Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel. You obey me, I will bless you. You disobey me, I will curse you talk. But it's not New Testament. Oh, Paul has got a lot of explaining to do. And so does Jesus. And so do every one of these disciples. So just get that out of your head. Possibility number two. It sometimes seems as though Jesus leaves us in our most difficult times. It sometimes seems as though Jesus leaves us in our most difficult times. I don't know why. If you know why, come tell me after the service. I'd love to know why. That sometimes in our most difficult times, our prayers seem to bounce off of the ceiling and right back in our face, and we feel cold, and we feel alone, and we feel abandoned, and we feel put on the shelf, and we feel all of those things as if Jesus has just walked off and left us. I don't know why. He sleeps in the stern sometimes, but he does. Or it seems that way. It seems that way. But we know he never leaves us. Maybe another application, Jesus has the power to calm the storm and bring us peace in a surprising moment. I mean, we go, Jesus can go from zero to 60 in a millisecond. I mean, like we're in the middle of a deadly sea quake. One millisecond later, perfectly calm. Jesus sleeps in the stern on us makes us feel like we're abandoned, makes it seem like everything's hopeless, seems like there's no answer, seems like we're all alone, and then all of a sudden, in a millisecond, everything changes, and we go, what happened? And we don't have an explanation. It's just Jesus. But I think the main application here, and here's where I think the main application is. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Jesus shows us here what faith looks like. And the disciples show us what it doesn't look like. Being able to lay your head down and rest in the midst of the storm equals faith. Fearful anxiety like the disciples equals no faith. And here's the point, I believe, that we can pull away from this passage of Scripture. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. He lays down to sleep because he has 100% perfect faith. First of all, faith in an omnipresent God. Jesus has perfect 100% faith in an omnipresent God. God is 100% present 100% of the time. Turn back to Psalm 139 with me. Psalm 139 Beginning in verse 1, listen to how the Holy Spirit, through the psalmist, explains the omnipresence of God. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know when I sit down. How many times a day do you sit down? You don't know, do you? Unless you 
like some folks I know, you sit down when you get up and you don't get up until you go back to bed. But you don't know how many times you sit down, but the psalmist says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up every time. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. You're not just acquainted, but you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Verse 4, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot contain it. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, verse 11, if I say surely the darkness will overwhelm me or or hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, verse 16, have seen my unformed substance. And listen, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. God wrote your every day before you were even born. You think you've got a day planner. We think we've got day planners, to-do lists. God wrote all of it down before He even knit you together in your mother's womb. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. In other words, God is 100% present 100% of the time and He is all up in the middle of your business. Whether you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, whether it seems like He's asleep or not, He is there and He knows everything single, solitary, minuscule detail like when you and how many times you're going to sit down. Puritan pastor Stephen Sharnock said, he is really present with us as if he were visible to us. He is in the same room with us as near to us as our souls to our bodies. Not a word, but he hears. Not a motion, but he sees. Not a breath, but he perceives. He is through all. He is in all. Jesus had 100% faith, perfect faith, because he knew that the Father, that God is absolutely omnipresent with him. 
He had perfect faith because he also had faith in a sovereign God. See, God isn't just able to stop storms. There would actually be no wind without God. There would be no waves without God. There could be no storm, but the sovereign, almighty hand of God give it permission and give it power. Jesus can sleep not just because he can stop the storm, but because he also started it and sustains it. There is not a molecule among men that isn't absolutely under the sovereign control and power of our great God. And if you don't believe that, I do not know how you are sane. Maybe you are. But I don't know how you are. The psalmist said in Psalm 107 and verse 23 to 30, those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distresses. He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so He guided them to their desired haven. He does it all. God is in 100% control of all things, sea quakes and sea steals. So just rest in that. Sleep in the storm. Be like Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon said, When you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Jesus had 100% perfect faith in an omnipresent God and a sovereign God. And listen to this, don't miss this, in a good God. Man, I, I can buy that God is always present. I can believe that God is in complete 100% control. But is He good in all this? How is He good in all of this? Well, God is good. 100% of the time. Look in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. I don't know how. I don't know how. But in Romans 8, 28, the Holy Spirit of God says, And we know that God, this omnipresent, sovereign God, causes all things, all things, to work together. Now, don't think this one thing that is absolutely terrible is all we're talking about here. No, he's, he's talking about all these things. The good, the bad, the ugly, the in-between, the terrible, the tragedy, the blessing. He can take all of these things 
And he works them together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. What's the main point of the passage? Be like Jesus. What has God done? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be like Jesus. To be conformed to the image of his Son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's a lot that God has done for us. So, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What more can God do for us than he has already done? He has done the absolute pinnacle of doings for us. He has given us his son. And if he has given us his son in order to glorify us and justify us and call us and to make us like Jesus, then why wouldn't he give us all things? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes. Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is present. He is sovereign and he is good. And Jesus has 100% faith in that. And I think Jesus would say to us through this passage this morning, when I take you to the very eye of the storm and it seems like I'm asleep, I expect you to have such faith in an omnipresent, sovereign, good God that rest seems more reasonable and acceptable than fear. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We believe that he is, but do we believe he's a rewarder? John Wesley was on his way to the United States to serve as an Anglican missionary to the Native Americans in the current state of Georgia. They probably still need a missionary over there. On the ship from England to Georgia, they encountered a terrible, terrible storm. And in the midst of the storm, he and the others on the ship were much like the disciples. They were afraid. They were panicked. They were gripped by terror. 
but not one group. There was a group of Moravians who seemed to be as at rest in the midst of that storm as Jesus was in Mark chapter 4. On January 25th, this is what John Wesley wrote in his diary. In the midst of the psalm, wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Moravians calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. But were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no. Our women and children are not afraid to die. The storm was boisterous, but the Moravians kept praising God. And finally, the storm subsided. And John Wesley, from that experience, realized he may have been coming to Georgia to be a missionary, but he did not know God like those Moravians did. So he began to attend their meetings. And through those Moravian meetings came to truly have life-changing, saving faith. What about you? Do you have this type of faith that Jesus calls for in Mark chapter 4? And that the Moravians displayed at sea? That is the type of faith that it will take to get us through real life and to heaven. And you can have it today. You see, God is perfectly holy and righteous. And His standard and expectation and demand for us is that we be absolutely perfect and holy and righteous just like Him. But we know the problem with that, right? We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or we have all sinned and come short of the glorious standard of God. We have all messed up and we are not perfect, and we are not holy, and we are not righteous, and therefore we are in big trouble because there's no amount of praying, there's no amount of giving, there's no amount of Bible reading, there's no amount of going to church, there is no amount of being good that can undo the fact that we have absolutely missed the mark of God's standard of holiness and perfection for us. We're in trouble. The Bible actually says we're dead. Hebrews, Ephesians chapter 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But the good news is, as we started this service, as we sang about this morning, that God so loved the world, the sinful world, that He gave His only Son. That Jesus would come to this earth to live a sinless, spotless, perfect, righteous life. The life God requires us to live, Jesus lived. And not only did he live that perfect, sinless, spotless, righteous life that God requires us to live, but he went to the cross, and on the cross, God the Father poured out upon Jesus on that cross our sin, our iniquity, our transgression, and he poured out his wrath and judgment on that sin, iniquity, and transgression upon Jesus, upon that cross, until Jesus said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit, and he shed his blood, and he died. And he was buried in a barred tomb, 
And on Sunday morning, God showed that he approved of and received that perfect sacrifice by raising him from the dead, bodily, triumphant, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. So that this morning, any person in this room who would turn away from their sin, any person in this room who would turn away from their own self-righteousness and their own religiosity and turn to God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, faith like this, can have their sin forgiven and have the righteousness of Christ applied to their life and be given peace with God in the midst of the storm and as we cross over into eternity. Hebrews chapter 2, you don't have to turn there unless you can beat me. You can't, I've got it marked. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Listen to this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus came, he took on flesh so that he could die, so that he could take all of the power away from the one who had it, who is the devil. And that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Listen, the reason Jesus came is yes to save us from our sins, yes to give us eternal life, but to free us from our fear of death because that is the one weapon that Satan has that he can hold over our head. When Jesus removes our fear of death, we're unstoppable. We can sleep on the cushion in the stern of the boat in the midst of the storm because if our omnipresent, sovereign, good God holding, holding the reins for us. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love. Help us to have true faith in you, the omnipresent, sovereign, good God of all creation. If there's a person here who doesn't know you, Lord, we pray that you would grant them repentance and grant them faith this morning and peace with you. And if there's one here going through the midst of a sea quake, we pray that in their heart they would have a sea still because of their hope and their faith and their rest in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.